The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. We're going to use carbon for a filament instead of a metal. Filament? I never heard that word before. Neither did I. I just made it up. That's ordinary sewing thread. I want you to put it in the oven and bake it for about an hour, you see? Get it thoroughly impregnated with carbon first. The way this is, then we'll put it in a bulb and try it. The thread's too delicate, Tom. The heat'll break it. Well, we'll try it anyway. But we've tried carbon before. Not carbonized thread. That isn't very scientific, Tom. I told you we had to leave science behind. Come on, I'll get this. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 7th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be The science has certainly been left behind in the theme we'll be touching on during the second half of our show today. It's a phenomenon the National Post has been calling junk science in its annual celebration of exposing the junk in the science, and we'll have our own 7.9 cents to add to that discussion after Robert takes a second look at the existential threat faced by Britain since it voted itself out of the European Union. But before we get underway, don't forget... You can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ at 5130 kHz, and on Channel 292 at 6070 kHz. And of course, you can visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Robert, the reaction to the Brexit certainly has not ended and probably won't for a while. (laughs) No, this is going to go on for years, Bob. As a matter of fact, it is a pivotal moment, I think, in global history. Um, Akin, I would liken it to, to um, the American Revolution, 1776. The feedback that we've received on our Facebook page um, has been um, quite interesting. Of course, you have both the Remain and the Leave side chiming in, and I can categorize the Remain's argument into two. One is, of course, the economic impact of exiting the European Union, uh, the falling pound and things like that, and stock prices. And, of course, the second one would be, we're all racists. (laughs) (laughs) That's it? (laughs) That's about it. Yeah, Yeah, there's really no good argument that I've seen yet from the Remain side, at least not on the the feedback that we've been getting. That, That is telling, isn't it? It is, I think, yeah. On the other side, the Leave side, of course, they've had to make their case because the status quo was the status quo. They didn't have to, they feel like they didn't have to defend their situation. But the Leave, they had to prove their point in order to sway the public. And I think they did a great job of it. And of course, history has borne out that they did a great job of it. What I often find interesting in any political change, such as in the UK voting to exit the EU, is the campaigning leading up to a change and the fallout from it. With Brexit, I'm particularly focused on how the left are reacting to their defeat and how the media are covering the story in general. Being in Canada, of course, my vantage point is that of an observer only. But we do live in a global village of sorts, to quote Canadian Marshall McLuhan. And so what happens in Britain and Europe does eventually affect all of us because what's happening is the result of ideas. And ideas are global. No, ideas are universal. And Britain today is a perfect crucible 
for ideas. Now, as I mentioned on last week's show, I was in favor of the UK leaving the EU for many reasons, perhaps the least of which were economic. In fact, I have to shake my head at how the press reacted just prior to and immediately after the referendum. Now, just prior to the vote, they deliberately blew way out of any proportion the reaction of the stock markets, which rise and fall daily in the normal course of trading. Large rises and steep declines of the kind we saw bracketing the vote are not the least bit uncommon and should have been absolutely of no concern for those holding British stocks or pounds. As one who dabbles in the market myself, I treat a fall in prices as an opportunity to buy and a rise in prices as an opportunity to sell. As many sane voices predicted, the pound and stocks have recovered, due apparently in large part, Bob, by China actually seeing an opportunity to buy some cheap British pounds and mm-hmm. stocks. So, no news there. Now, this week saw the United States of America celebrate their vote to leave the British Empire. Of course, the vote of the Congress. Mm-hmm. A decision backed up by some pretty savvy generals and a determined fighting force. Ironically, and perhaps antithetical to my argument here, I understand that there were more Americans, uh, still then the subjects of uh, King George, of course, who fought on the side of their king rather than on the side of the revolutionaries who fought for their independence. The revolutionaries, of course, weren't just fighting the British. They also had to contend with 30,000 German Hessian soldiers bought into service by Britain. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Of course, this is old news and not something I have any particular expertise on, only to make an observation. People have gone to war to make changes similar to the changes the British made in their referendum by simply placing a ballot in a box. What matters the value of the pound, the value of oil, or the price of tea in China when it comes to making a substantial change in the way a nation is governed. Millions have died over countless thousands of years to change rulers, to move borders, to establish constitutions, and to overthrow unelected dictators. All of this talk of Europe, Europe putting tariffs on fish and the like, is pure cowardice in the face of great change. Give it a rest. This is the concluding paragraph of the American Declaration of Independence from Britain, which I think bears repeating 240 years later, especially in light of Brexit. Quote, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all the other things and acts which independent states may of right do, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Unquote. These 56 men who signed that Declaration of Independence didn't care about the value of their stocks. 
They pledged their lives to their cause. Some of them lost it. Most of them lost their fortunes. So for all of you who lost the referendum in Britain to regain your independence, to be able to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do, I say pipe down and let the real men do the talking here and the thinking for you because you have neither the courage nor the fortitude to act in your own long-term best interest, it appears. Your concern over the value of the pound is fraudulent anyway. What you really seek is to belong to a larger socialist collective. You want a King George or some similar ruler to care for you from cradle to grave. You want and need someone stronger than yourself to guide you and make your decisions for you, to tell you how curved a cucumber must be before it can be sold as a cucumber, to make sure that every aspect of your lives is regulated and controlled. Now, what follows is a marvelous speech by Daniel Hannan of, at, Oxford, at the Oxford Union prior to the referendum. He masterfully explains his reasons for wanting to leave the EU, even given the fact that he's a member of the European Parliament, a one-percenter, you might say, and will be giving up his fortune should the vote go his way. Following Hannon is a clip from Vice News, which was on scene in London the morning the results of the vote came in. The reporter followed a rabble around London holding signs saying things like F racism, Deloy Polizze, which apparently is Yiddish for F the police. <laughs> <laughs> Migrants unite. Movement for justice by any means necessary. And, of course, the typical diversionary no to racism. Many of the protesters in the video are wearing balaclavas over their faces, which is the usual garb worn by the violent, the anarchist, the black bloc, and of course, cowards. But first, Daniel Hannan. And now look to Daniel Hannan, Oriel College, to continue the case for the proposition. <laughs> President, ladies and gentlemen, every campaign generates its truisms, its hackneyed phrases, its cliches, and this one is no exception. And one of the great cliches that defines this campaign is head versus heart. But of course, cliches become cliches for a reason. And I think a number of us feel tugged viscerally one way and intellectually the other, including me. I absolutely get the emotional appeal of Europe. I speak French, I speak Spanish, I've lived and worked all over the continent. 17 years I've been in Brussels, I have some very dear friends there among the Eurocrats. Of course, being Eurocrats, they all want Europe to be a single country and a federal system and all the rest of it, but that doesn't stop them being decent people, kind neighbours and loyal friends. But you can't be ruled only by your heart. Saying, I am supporting the EU because I like Europe, would be rather like saying, I am supporting FIFA because I like football. <laughs> we need to look not at a fantasy European Union that is all about peace and collaboration among nations, but, among, but rather look at the one that has in fact taken shape under our noses. A racket which far from benefiting the least well-off, as the Treasurer was just saying, takes money from low and medium income people and gives it to the most privileged and to the big corporations. Just ask yourself why it is that the mega banks 
and the multinationals are pouring money into the Remain campaign. Why is it that Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Citibank and Morgan Stanley and all the rest are funding the people campaigning not to let us recover our independence? I'll tell you why. The biggest surprise to me when I was a newly elected MEP was the extent to which these giant corporations wanted more regulation. See, I'd innocently supposed, being elected as a Conservative, that being private enterprises, they'd want freedom of action. I was disabused of that within about a week of arriving. They love regulation because they can afford the compliance costs more easily than their smaller rivals. They have captured the Brussels machine and used it to raise barriers to entry. Very good news for the cartel of established multinationals. Very bad news for the innovator, the startup, the entrepreneur. So it's the day of the referendum result, Britain has left the EU and we've come to a protest here in Whitechapel. A lot of these people want to show solidarity with refugees because they believe that now that we have come out of the EU these people are going to get uh, a much rougher deal. They, they want to show that they're angry I guess uh, and we'll see what happens. I have seen the police violence, walked the bread lines and delivered CPR to drowned children on the beaches that we could not save. So like many of you here, I know that borders kill is not a slogan. It is a brutal daily reality for millions of people all over the world. We need an immediate guarantee of the rights of all migrants who are living in Britain, that they will not be sent away, that they will not lose their right to stay in Britain, that they will not lose their right to work in Britain. So the crowd have moved on from the park now. We're just going to march down to the offices of The Sun, which is the best-selling tabloid newspaper in Britain. They've been running a lot of anti-refugee rhetoric on the run-up to the referendum. Um, and these guys, you know, anti-fascists, leftists, obviously not very happy about that. And what event their anger, to be honest. How do you feel about the result today? Obviously, we've left the EU. Are you worried? Look man, the, the result today is the result of the people, that's what the people want and, and that's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm upset because I feel like it was after a programme of misinformation, so I feel like people, people I was, you know, people I love and know and love were swindled and a lot of people now are turning around like actually, you know, European Union, you know, where's our funding going to come from for certain things? But if anything, I think this teaches us one thing that we need to like unite as a nation. We need to really like figure out who's trying to dupe us, who's trying to do us in, and who's trying to uh, improve our lives. Tories out! Migrants in! Tories out! Migrants in! We've come here to the headquarters of Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation in Britain because we want them to send a message. We want them to send a message that we will do everything we can to defend the rights of migrants living here. Ron Murdoch's rags, his racist newspapers, his racist TV stations. To send a message that we're staying on the streets and we're going to fight!
That clip was from Vice News. Did you hear that one protester say, where's our funding going to come from? (laughs) (laughs) Very telling, that is. Where indeed? Who will feed us? Who will take care of us? Who will subsidize our flat? Our sex change. (laughs) That small mob of extreme left-wing thugs do not typify, I hope, the millions of Brits who voted to remain. I don't want to give the impression that I think all the millions who voted to remain in the EU are this this kind of nut job. They aren't, of course. However, these people typify the left. Unfettered immigration into the UK was a major, if not deciding, factor in the success of the Leave vote. But in typical leftist fashion, they labeled those opposed to open immigration as racists. When in fact the main concern for many who voted leave was not open immigration per se, but the unchecked immigration of literally millions of Muslims in particular. And since Islam is not a race, their slur of racism is seen for what it is. A non-argument, a slur, nothing more. A diversion. We've covered on this show before the crisis in places like Tower Hamlets in London, which is fast becoming a no-go zone for non-Muslims. In the heart of London, we see thousands of Muslims block the streets as they bow to Mecca, holding up traffic, um, impeding commerce, and keep impeding travel. Of course, what they're really doing is defiantly showing the rest of Britain that they're there to take over, as they've done in many other communities in Britain and in France, Sweden, Germany, and many other European countries. Enoch Powell, Powell, you know, was right. But it had nothing to do with color. It has everything to do with ideology. The ideology of Islam is incompatible with the open, free, individualistic nature of Britain and their vote to escape the EU has come, I think, in the nick of time. Whether or not they can reverse the damage done to their country by the suicidal immigration policies of the EU still remains to be seen. You know, it's usually the left who are the first to side with principles of democracy, it seems, anyway. Democracy here being narrowly defined as the ability to elect your members of parliament. Now, we've we've given a more complete definition of democracy on earlier shows, and you might want to search for that issue on our website, justrightmedia.org, to find exactly what Bob and I mean by democracy. And it's it not doesn't, just majority it, vote. It's not majority rule. That's a, that's a small aspect of what democracy means. But I'm using that narrow definition here to, to, sh- to point out that it always seems to be the left to say they're in favor of elections and voting and the will of the people through the ballot, giving power to the people. The left often side, apparently, with democracy, decrying any elitism, monarchism, patronage, old boys networks, what have you. Power to the people, right? And yet they support the undemocratic European Union at a time when one of the presidents of the EU has publicly announced his disdain for any democratic change to the terms of union. You know, it would seem that the left only use democracy as a tool to gain power, after which they use that power to abolish, guess what? Democracy. Democracy. (laughs) How did I guess? (laughs) History is how you guessed. It is not about democracy for the left. It's about control. It's always about power and control. You know, it's like that old saying, uh, one man, one vote, one time. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's the left's view of democracy, and it's true. You know, workers of the world unite. That's the rallying cry at the end of Marx and Engels' um, 
screed against capitalism and freedom. Ask the people in China, Poland, East Germany, Russia, Albania, and etc., how that turned out for them, workers of the world unite, or proletarians of every land unite, I think was the exact quote. Yeah, make sure you ask the people, not the, not the uh, establishment. Not the establishment, <laughs> not the rulers, yeah. For the left, the will of the people is always exercised by a select few, commissars, czars, and, pari, and party apparatchiks. <laughs> apparatchiks. <laughs> I could never say that word. Apparatchiks. Yeah, party apparatchiks. As a member nation or as member nations in the EU begin to lose their independence, as they are doing, their control over their local affairs, they're becoming mere advisory assemblies or advisory councils to the EU. The EU, the European Union, is becoming, by design, mind you, it's planned, all of this is planned out, and it's all by design, a union of councils, or to use the Russian words, a Soviet Union. Because that's what the word council is in, in, in Russian, Soviet. Uh-huh. <laughs> Perhaps when and if Russia ever joins the EU, the charade will be over and the world will once again have a Soviet Union, a new and expanded Soviet Union, one which will span the entire Asian continent from the Kamchatka Peninsula to the Iberian Peninsula, all one big, happy, controlled, and bureaucratically regulated family. Now, the one wrinkle in the plan of the new Soviet is that the new Russian hegemony will end at the English Channel. And once again, Britain will stand alone, if it wasn't, for the rest of the Commonwealth and the free world having its back. Now, the situation for the UK will not be unlike the situation currently being played out, I think, as in the comparison, by Israel in the Middle East, a tiny country surrounded by political and ideological enemies. Just as it was in the Second World War, you know, mm-hmm. when Hitler took over Europe, who remained? Yeah. <laughs> to use that word, remain. <laughs> Britain. Of course, this new Soviet idea is only speculation on my part, but the thing is, we've seen it before. It's not out of the, rel- out of the realm of possibility. It is not as an unreasonable extrapolation from history to presume that such a thing could not come to pass and come to pass, by the way, quite quickly. I think that something like this could happen in yours and my lifetime. Oh, easy, and it's not unreasonable to assume that there are people with those very objectives in mind. And they're pushing. These things don't happen by themselves. No, as I say, yeah. I think this is all planned. Oh, this is it's all been planned by design. for years. That's yeah. the problem: is that the left has been better at long-term planning they than are the relentless. right. They are relentless because the right believes more in freedom than the left, and therefore they let things go a little bit, and not realizing that you do have to protect that freedom, and that requires certain disciplines. Yes, and you know the right. If I want to label uh, the average person by that label, uh, let's just say the non-left. Yeah. The non-left are non-violent. You know, it takes a great deal for people to rise up. It takes actual, you know, blood on the streets in great quantity for the average person to take up arms. And I don't think that uh, we're there yet. People are too complacent. They they see the freedoms that they have and they figure they've got it pretty good. So it's the left that are always on the violent side. And remember, I mean, Rem- argumentum ad Hitlerium. Hitler <laughs> was a leftist. He was yes. a socialist. Don't forget that. Yes, he was a nationalist, but he was a socialist. He's a lefty. Yeah, it bothers me when I read the papers all the time, the rise of the extreme right, and then you see what they're <laughs> writing about, and it's all lefties. 
Yeah. Every one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, in Russia, they have the uh, megalomaniac Putin. And in Europe, we have a bureaucracy apparently willing to cast aside of the will of the people and eager to be led by a single bureaucratic apparatus and a person like Putin. Something Russia, by the way, this um, bureaucratic apparatus, they excelled at that in Russia for over 70 years. So you don't think that they're going to seize an opportunity when they see it, when uh, Europe starts to look for guidance in these matters? No, the new Soviet is a definite possibility. But anyway, let's leave this doom and gloom scenario for Europe on an uplifting note. Here's more from the eloquent Daniel Hannan. Now, why am I confident that life will be better outside? Well, two things. First, democracy. Contrast this union, the Oxford Union, with the European Union. The people who take the decisions here are elected. It's democratic. Now contrast that with the European Union. Well, we just heard from my honourable friend from New College what Jean-Claude Juncker thinks of democracy. There can be no democratic choice against the treaty. Ponder those words. There can be no democratic choice against the European treaties. Dominic made the point that the European Commission is undemocratic. Actually, he slightly understated the case. Uniquely, we have fashioned a system that is anti-democratic in the sense that you generally only get to go there when you've lost an election. So it's only when, like Chris Patton or Neil Kinnock or indeed now Jean-Claude Juncker, it's, it's been only when you're, when you're expressly rejected by your voters that you are invited to come and legislate for them anyway. Now, let me, let me submit, my friends, that opposing that system doesn't make us anti-European, right? If, if Britain were run this way, if we were governed by 28 unelected British commissioners, who, as a result of being invulnerable to public opinion, immune to the ballot box, had come out with such spectacular failures as the common fisheries policy, the euro, the Schengen zone, I'd be against that. I hope most of you would be. It wouldn't make us anti-British. It wouldn't make us Anglo-sceptics. It would make us Democrats. We don't have a trade, policy, a trade agreement with India. Nine years the EU has been discussing it and has shelved it. Right? Is there a country in this part of the world that stands to gain more from unfettered commerce with India? India is English-speaking for commercial purposes, certainly. It's common law. Right? There are 1.4 million Brits of Indian origin. We are the third largest investor in India. India is the third largest investor here, but we can't sign a free trade agreement because Italian textile workers don't want the competition and French farmers don't like the idea. We don't have a free trade agreement with Australia. Why? It's being held up by some Italian tomato growers. Now, the Italian tomato growers may be right or wrong. I don't know enough about the case, but how on earth is it in the interest of our country to be prevented from pursuing global trade exploiting our links of language and law, of culture and kinship and migration that connect us to every continent, and to tie ourselves to the world's only shrinking trade bloc. And, by the way, to pay for the privilege of belonging to the tune of £20 billion, gross £10 billion net every year. My friends, the European Union is obsolete. You know, we just heard from the Treasurer that there was a very famous televised debate here in 1975. Well, since few of us can remember 1975, I can tell you, 1975 was not a good time for this country. Right? Three-day week, prices and incomes policies, we were in a bad way. We looked across Europe, we said, these chaps are doing something right. Does it feel that way today? When we look across the channel now, we see the European Union convulsed in the twin Schengen and Euro crisis. Does this look like a project 
that we would be rushing to join if we were not already in, held there by the vested interests and the sunk costs of a few civil servants, politicians, and large multinationals. Edmund Burke said that a nation is a partnership between the people who have died, the people who are alive now, and the people who haven't yet been born. Being a nation means that we're not just a random set of individuals born to a different random set of individuals. It imposes on us a duty to keep intact the freedoms that we were lucky enough to inherit from our parents and pass them on securely to the next generation. My late father, in 1944, volunteered to defend with, right, with force of arms our right to live under our own laws and our own people in our own sovereign parliament. I don't want his grandchildren to lose that portion of their inheritance. saying, Leonard, you'll never guess who I just found online. Professor Proton. You're kidding. He's still alive? Yes. Who's Professor Proton? Professor Proton hosted my favorite science show when I was a child. I never missed an episode. Uh, he demonstrated scientific principles using everyday objects. It was pretty cool. Aw, so cute when you use the word cool wrong. <laughs> like when kids say Paschetti. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Leonard, look. He's still available for parties and events. We should hire him. Hire him to do what? Well, whatever we want. Hang out, do experiments, make him take 12 pictures with us so we can make a calendar. It would be pretty awesome to hang out with him. I just used awesome wrong, didn't I? Well, I'm emailing him right now. Do you remember his old theme song? Of course I do. Grab your goggles, put your lab coat on. Here he comes, Professor Proton. <laughs> You're listening to Just Right on shortwave and online. You can visit www.justrightmedia.org to access our entire archive of every broadcast of this show and many other features that are on that site. Check it out. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Now, sad to say, the curiosity and passion about science shared by the characters on the Big Bang Theory does not seem to be found in a significant segment of the population anymore. Uh, that was from the Big Bang Theory, and of course, Professor Proton was played by Bob Newhart, who probably has developed his sense of humor and timing right down to a science. Or is it an art? I suppose it depends on the particular method with which you achieve your intended goal. In fact, I think you could make the case that art and science are inseparable in the sense that people would say a particular discipline is both a science and an art. Whichever way you look at it, I don't think it will greatly affect our theme today, which was inspired by the National Post's annual Junk Science Week, a week during which the paper traditionally features articles on scientific news reports and discoveries that turn out to be what they call junk science. And to address that very concept, let me begin by sharing with you the essentials of the following selected commentaries that were featured in the paper's Junk Science Week celebration in June. Science is Broken reads the headline of Terence Corcoran's commentary on June 14th. And I will quote from him because he pretty well sets out the parameters of all of this, and it's very interesting to hear. And I quote, 
Junk science occurs when scientific facts are distorted, risk is exaggerated, and the science adapted and warped by politics and ideology to serve another agenda. Much of our content over the past 18 years, referring to the National Post here, has focused less on, less on science itself and more on the NGOs, politicians, and others who have found it convenient to use and abuse science as a springboard to political action. It is easy, perhaps too easy, to follow the empty-headed foibles of a media culture that mindlessly recycles reports that bacon may cause heart disease or that cell phones cause cancer. Less easy is dealing with the much bigger problem, the breakdown of science itself. In The Guardian last week, which would be early June, Jerome Rabetz, considered one of the world's leading philosophers of science, reviewed what he and many others describe as, quote, the crisis in science. Rabetz sees the crisis spreading to the general public, quote, given the public awareness that science can be low quality or corrupted, that whole fields can be misdirected for decades, and that some basic fields must progress in the absence of any prospect of empirical testing, and there he refers to string theory, the naive realism of previous generations becomes quite medieval in its irrelevance to present realities. Present reality is that science is on the verge of a nervous breakdown. That's the not-so-tongue-in-cheek message in Science on the Verge, a new book by European scientist Andrea Saltelli and seven other contributors. Science on the Verge is a 200-page indictment of what to the lay reader appears to be a monumental deterioration across all fields, from climate research and science to health research to economics. The mere idea that, quote, most published research results are false, end quote, should be cause for alarm. No kidding. But it's worse than that, he writes. It affects just about everything we take for granted in modern science, from the use of big data to computer models of major parts of our social, economic, and natural environment, and onto the often absurd uses of statistical methods to fish for predetermined conclusion. One example that Corcoran cites from the book concerns species extinction. It's actually quite funny, Robert, once the obvious uh, emperor wears no clothes observation is stated out loud. Get this. And this is again from Corcoran. Apparently a scientific paper in Science Magazine claimed, quote, that precisely 7.9%, not 8% or 7%, of the world's species would become extinct as a result of climate change, when the total number of species is unknown. Even Otter, the species study, concluded that the 7.9% demonstrates, quote, the importance of rapid implementation of technologies to decrease greenhouse gas emissions and strategies for carbon sequestration, or sequestration. How, is that how I say it? I don't know. <laughs> End sequestration. Quote. Yeah. I don't know. How, asks Science on the Verge contributing author Jerome P. van der Sluy of the University of Bergen, do the researchers jump from species extinction to carbon sequestration. I I brought this story to my mother's attention. You know what she said? She said, well, 7.9% sounds very scientific. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh, it's true. And she says, you know, a simple 8% wouldn't sound very scientific. 8% sounds like a generality, uh, you know, a layman's term. What uh, what a brilliant observation. I I couldn't believe it, you know. She goes, 7.9% sounds like somebody at least took the time to measure something. (laughs) You know, you know, when I look at the weather channel, right, they now say that thunderstorm warning in your area from now until 8.42 in the morning of tomorrow. And I'm going, who are you trying to kid? <laughs> I know, it's hilarious. 
But uh, Corcoran concludes, it would be wrong to suspect that science on the verge is the work of right-wing activists, climate skeptics, and hidebound traditionalists. It is the work, rather, of scientists with a range of ideological views, despairing over what appears to be a fundamental breakdown as science has become more and more enmeshed in the business of providing evidence for policymaking. Science, in short, has already been corrupted, correctly, concludes Corcoran. Here's another one from Junk Science Week, written by Pascal Emmanuel Gobri. Gobri, I guess. Um, Politically psychotic science was the headline. And he writes, this is funny, Remember when a study came out and said that conservative political beliefs are associated with psychotic traits such as authoritarianism and tough-mindedness? Yes, I do, actually. I read about this. While liberalism is associated with, quote, social desirability. The American Journal of Political Science recently had to print a somewhat embarrassing correction. The study's results weren't just a little off. They weren't a lot off. They were exactly backwards. (laughs) (laughs) The original paper, The Relationship Between Personality Traits and Political Ideologies, published in 2012, was retracted by the magazine when it explained, quote, the interpretation of the coding of the political attitude items in the descriptive and preliminary analyses proportion of the manuscript were exactly reversed. In other words, at least according to this study, it's liberals who are psychotic and conservatives who are awesome. Well, obviously, as a conservative, writes Gobri, I first had to stop laughing for 10 minutes before I could catch my (laughs) breath. But this is bigger than that. Ads Retraction Watch, quote, that 2012 paper has been cited 45 times according to Thomson Reuters' Web of Science. The reason the study was made and the reason it was published and the reason it was cited so often despite its shoddy methodology was simply to smear conservatives and to use science as a weapon in our soul-deadening cultural political war. By the way, that means that the study also did not really prove anything about liberals either. It was, it was a piece of crap from top to bottom. Well, of okay. course. But in any case, he writes, isn't it time we see that this is killing science and its credibility? Isn't it time to do something about it? That is, if science is an actual disinterested pursuit and not a priestly class that, like all priestly classes, eventually forges its calling and just seeks to aggrandize its power and control the masses. The political bias problem is merely the visible part of the iceberg. Science's problems run much deeper. The social prestige associated with the word science has led to excesses in many directions, leading us to believe that science is the equivalent of magic, when it is actually a specific and flawed process for doing important but limited things. We're not helped by the fact that most scientists are themselves ignorant about how science works. Only 11% of preclinical cancer research could be reproduced, according to a recent survey. False results have spawned entire fields of literature and study and of grants. And this is just one example. At stake is much more than political and culture wars. The end result is that big science is now broken, with it being nearly certain now that most public research are false, and most importantly, no one has any idea what to do about it. End quote. Well, I don't know why uh, he said that the scientific process is flawed, though. I mean, that I don't want to let that slide. I don't well, necessarily think the process well, is flawed. Well, he's saying that the people in the big science is broken, how it's being done. Well, I, the people I, may the, be flawed, yeah, yeah. but I don't know about the process. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a simple protest, observation, hypothesis, experimentation, to either yeah. accept or reject a null hypothesis. Uh, That's a pretty good process. Well, we'll be uh, answering his question for him a little later in the show. 
Needless to say, the National Post series included a number of commentaries on the junk, sci- uh, on the junk science of climate change, a single issue that we've devoted a great deal of time to on this show, and will again in the future, but I want to skip that particular one for today. In his June 14th essay, The GDP Factory, writer Arnold Kligg points out that, quote, ever since World War II, the economics profession has gravitated towards the pseudoscience of mathematical and statistical modeling. As a result, economists have made policy recommendations in some areas, such as fiscal stimulus, with unwarranted confidence, end quote. And he goes on to make some very valid observations and destroy many myths, but no science. Then there's William Watson who in his June 16th commentary, Make GDP Gender-Free, began with an economics joke that perhaps only economics, economists rather, will get. If you can get this one. Quote, how can you tell that macroeconomists have a sense of humor? How? By their use of decimal points. <laughs> okay. On June 15th, there was Patrick Luciani's contribution to Junk Science Week titled The Great Sugar Scare, whose essay concludes with the sentence, quote, And for heaven's sake, stop reading news stories about sugar or any pop science about health or illness, for that matter. You'll live longer that way. Yes. End quote. And on the same day, there was Peter Sean Taylor's commentary, quote, Next We Could Tax Potatoes, in which he cites, quote, Academic scrutiny has recently unmasked the humble potato as a starchy waste widener and all-around purveyor of death. He thankfully made it clear that, quote, potatoes are an important, nutritious, and inexpensive Canada diet staple, not to mention a major farm crop. Efforts by public health advocates to demonize individual food items such as sugary drinks, red meat, or potatoes are best understood as ideological crusades, generally driven by anti-corporate animus, end quote. So let's take a break for a smile, and when we return, we'll take a look at just how science is being defined these days, and why so many people fall for just about anything that has the adjective scientific attached to it. It's happy time in the orchestra, ladies and gentlemen. The Merv Makers. Aren't they wonderful? You know, we're kind of lucky tonight to have with us today a, a, a man who has made a very, very significant medical discovery. He's here to share it with us now. He's from the Department of Internal Medicine at Rutledge University. Please welcome Dr. Hugh Slocum. The doctor's in. We're lucky to find you in. Welcome. <laughs> What's up, Doc? Very. Uh, I understand you've uh, discovered a part of the body that no one has ever identified before, or not, not even seen that much. Can you tell our audience a little bit about it, what it is? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Through much uh, medical research and study, mm-hmm. I have found a new internal organ never found before, mm. which uh, I like to call the slocum. Well, of course, after yourself. Oh. <laughs> good thing you're not uh, Dr. Irwin's stomach. You could get sued, you know, because they already have one of those. That's good. <laughs> exactly what is this? I mean, uh, people don't find uh, new organs every day, that's for sure. Oh, that's true. That's true. Uh, this is probably the most important in-body find. Well, maybe you can maybe you can tell us exactly how you found the slocum and, uh, you know, what does it do? Well, I was, uh, I was looking at this x-ray of okay. a routine stroke patient, mm-hmm. you know, nothing at all. And I was looking, <laughs> and I, I noticed this shadow behind the heart. Well, naturally, I thought my nurse had gotten her thumb in the picture. Oh. 
She's done that a number of times, uh. you know. <laughs> However, on closer inspection, I found that it was indeed a slocum. Exactly. Uh, what does the slocum do? I think is. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say too. It's a, what. It must have a function. Oh uh, yes, uh, yes. Well, the uh, slocum is uh, the uh, oral sensitizer. <laughs> now, exactly. I'm not a medical man, and I, I, I know. Oh, well, I think... actually, that's a new word. You see, being it's a new organ, you have to find new terms. So okay. I call it oral sensitizer. And we'll think you didn't call it a slocum sizer or something. <laughs> well, name that. As a matter of fact, I, I did call it that, but oh, uh, it seems that no somebody had discovered a, a different organ. They had called it a slocum too. You know, yeah. with, <laughs> with the branch of the family. Sure. Anyway, well, the reason I call it an oral sensitizer, very simply, is is if you eat something very cold. Sure. You know, like an ice cream cone mm -hmm. or an ice cream sandwich. An ice cream sundae. An mm -hmm. ice cream sundae. Even yes. a pint of ice cream yes. out of a yes. 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 ice, right. just ice water. Chew Chew ice. Chew ice, mm -hmm. yes. Dry ice. Sunday. Ice cream Sunday. Yeah. A pint of ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. Ice, just ice water. Chew ice. Chew ice. Mm -hmm. Yes. Dry ice. Eskimo Sunday. Eskimo pop. Sherbet. Okay. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah. I think we get the idea. Yeah. Yeah. If you eat that, you know anything that's really that cold. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as your teeth hit that cold oh, oh, food, oh, oh, yeah. you get this tremendous oh, headache. Uh -huh. Right up in the sinuses, right in here. Right. You just go, ooh. Yeah. Right, yes. What do you see? Yeah. Well, think we all do. The Slocum controls that. Uh, okay. You'll find it there in my book. Yeah, we have a copy of your book here somewhere. Uh, I, I don't know what we did with it. It's got to be here somewhere. <laughs> Jerry, if you... Uh... Oh, the book. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I guess it's just cleaning. <laughs> I think... Uh... Just I think I'm to blame for that. I think I took his book home it's yesterday. Just, uh, yours. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they tell me you have my book here. I took it home yesterday. I'm Did sorry. Did you read it? Did you read it? Well, no, my air conditioning's going out, and I wanted something to jar the door open with. It makes it like door jam. Oh, Jerry. Well, I'm sorry. I feel like a complete fool. Well, you... Well, the reason I'm on the program is they told me we would discuss my book, and you'd have it here. Jerry. Can you come back another it's time? It's not your well, book to take home. Well, listen, Dr. Perfectly all right. How did I know he was coming on today? It could have been next week's guest. It's all right. It's I my luck without a heat problem. wave and my air conditioner went out. Okay. What are the chances of that, medically speaking, of a heat wave the same time an air conditioner goes out and a doctor appearing on the show? Well, I don't think there's any precedent. Yeah. Yeah. Doctor, I think you'll just probably have to describe yeah, Well, it's all right. I have an x-ray. I can here. describe the book. It was blue and green and had the doctor's photograph on it. <laughs> Now, there is an accurate book description that you can take to the bank. <laughs> Looking for definitions, Robert, of science, and I did a lot of research on this, going to various sources. And amazingly, my first Google search came up with what I thought was the, most, was the best of most of the, the, the definitions. And it read, uh, the intellectual uh, and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Now, this is among the best of a vast number of definitions of science I found in various sources, best meaning that it covered all the essentials. For example, science is intellectual. That means it refers to theory, to ideas, concepts. Science is practical. That refers to the theory and practice, the theory applied to reality. And this one's the most important, more so than the other two. Science is an activity. All activities require energy, effort, and discipline. So that was, for me, the best and simplest of the 
definitions. However, found some other ones, and one of them was from Merriam-Webster online, merriam-webster.com. Full definition of science, it said, and I disagreed with every point. They had five points, and here's the points. One, a state of knowing. Knowledge as distinguished from ignorance or misunderstanding. Well, that's totally wrong. This is not the definition of science. I may know that it's hot outside, but that's not related to science in any way whatsoever. No, no not at all. And science is not a state of being or consciousness. Again, it's an activity. Two, a department of systemized knowledge as an object of study, as in the science of theology. Now, I could not really argue that theology is a science. Science is an activity that concerns itself with reality and reason, not with the supernatural or faith or with organizing faith-based beliefs into a logical doctrine. I think they're trying to define the usage of that word, not necessarily science per se, but right. how we use it. But even if but, we but use it, but it makes things confusing, you know, yes, for course, people yeah. who use it. Third, a knowledge or system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through scientific method. Well, again, not so. General truths are to be found in the philosophy department, not in the scientific community. Science is completely fragmented in its field of activity. Four, a system or method reconciling practical ends with scientific laws, as in cooking is both a science and an art. Well, applied science is technology. Cooking can involve scientific knowledge. You wouldn't want to poison yourself as a result of ignorance. But science is not a reconciliation method of matching a predetermined end with a law of nature or of science. That's just not correct. And finally, they just gave capitalized Christian science. Huh? Yeah, right. And I said, well, Christian defines the faith beliefs of a particular person who's called a Christian, while science describes a completely non-faith-based and only evidence and reason-based systematic approach to acquiring knowledge. Rather oxymoronic, yeah. isn't it? how much more contradictory can you get? <laughs> but this brought to mind John McMurray, who has a slightly different spin on it. Quote, in its true sense, science is the one proper positive expression of Christianity that the world has yet seen, which to me <laughs> clearly implies that all of the other expressions of Christianity have been quite negative. <laughs> right? And he writes, during the earlier stages of its development, science had to struggle for its very existence against religious prejudice. When McMurray says earlier stages of its development with relation to science, I would argue that it was the earlier stages of Christianity's development that was the source of the struggle and where the struggle took place. Science had no such struggle. It had political and religious enemies and still does to this very day. But concludes McMurray, modern science is very liable to superstition and tends to breed superstition in its devotees. There is even a superstition called... Christian science, <laughs> as we just heard. Science and religion are not concerned with two different worlds, but with one and the same world, the only world there is. But they deal with different aspects of that world. Science is quantitative. Religion is qualitative. There cannot be two truths about the same world. Truth is one and indivisible. Is religion, therefore, to be the science of quality? Then again, religion would be swallowed by science and disappear. The field of religious experience is the field of personal relationships, end quote. Funk and Wagnalls describe science as any department of knowledge in which the results of investigation have been logically arranged and systemized. Knowledge of facts, phenomena, laws, and proximate causes gained and verified by exact observation, etc. This definition is not so much a definition of science, but of knowledge. 
Science is the means, the activity by which the knowledge is accumulated and tested, but science is not the knowledge, nor the knowledge science. I may know anything that I have been taught by those who understand a subject in question, but possessing knowledge of science does not make me a scientist. <laughs> Ayn Rand offers us not a definition of science per se, but her answers to the questions posed by those who do not know what to do about the disintegration or collapse of science. And she writes, science was born as a result and consequence of philosophy. It cannot survive without a philosophical, a particularly epistemological base. If philosophy perishes, science will be the next to go. It is not the special sciences that teach man to think. It is philosophy that lays down the epistemological criteria of all special sciences. The disintegration of philosophy in the 19th century and its collapse in the 20th have led to a similar, though much slower and less obvious, process in the course of modern science. Today's frantic development in the field of technology has a quality reminiscent of the days preceding the economic crash of 1929. Riding on the momentum of the past, on the unacknowledged remnants of an Aristotelian epistemology, it is a hectic, feverish expansion, heedless to the fact that its theoretical account is long since overdrawn, that in the field of scientific theory, unable to integrate or interpret their own data, scientists are abetting the resurgence of primitive mysticism. In the humanities, however, the crash is past, the depression has set in, and the collapse of science is all but complete. The clearest evidence may be seen in such comparatively young sciences as psychology and political economy. In psychology, one may observe the attempt to study human behavior without reference to the fact that man is conscious. In political economy, one may observe an attempt to study and devise social systems without reference to man. It is philosophy that defines and establishes the epistemological criteria to guide human knowledge in general, and specific science in particular. Philosophy studies the fundamental nature of existence of man and of man's relationship to existence, as against the special sciences, which deal only with particular aspects. Philosophy deals with those aspects of the universe which pertain to everything that exists. In the realm of cognition, the special science are the trees, but the philosophy is the soil which makes the forest possible. As a human being, you have no choice about the fact that you need a philosophy. Your only choice is whether you define your philosophy consciously, rationally, in disciplined process of thought, and scrupulously logical deliberation, or let your subconscious accumulate a junk heap, there's that word, of unwarranted conclusions, false generalizations, undefined contradictions, undigested slogans, unidentified wishes, doubts, and fears, thrown together by chance, but integrated by your subconscious into a kind of mongrel philosophy infused into a single solid weight. Self-doubt, like the ball and chain in the place where your mind's wings should have grown. What an incredible statement. Mm -hmm. Nice visual. <laughs> The men who are not interested in philosophy need it most urgently. They're most helplessly in its power. The men who are not interested in philosophy absorb its principles from the cultural atmosphere around them, from schools, colleges, books, magazines, newspapers, movies, televisions, etc. Which, by the way, is exactly why Just Right uses many of those sources as our bouncing board from which to spring our discussions and conversations. Who sets the tone of a culture, she asks? A small handful of men the philosophers. Others follow their lead, either by conviction or by default. 
The present state of the world is not the proof of philosophy's impotence, but proof of its power. It is philosophy that has brought men to this state. It is only philosophy that will lead them out. If in the course of philosophical detection you find yourself at times stopped by the indignantly bewildering question, how can anyone arrive at such nonsense, you'll begin to understand it when you discover that evil philosophies are systems of rationalization. Philosophy is the foundation of science, epistemology the foundation of philosophy. It is with a new approach to epistemology that the rebirth of philosophy has to begin. Then she defines ideology as a, politi a, a political ideology as a set of principles aimed at establishing or maintaining a certain social system. It is a program of long-range action with the principles serving to unify and integrate particular steps into a consistent course. It is only by means of principles that men can project the future and choose their actions accordingly, end quote. Now, of course, on this point, our good friend Salim Mansour has argued against ideology on past shows. And after hearing his definition of ideology when he described it in our conversations, continued on his premise, which was acceptable within the context of our conversation. But what Ayn Rand defined as ideology is what Salim referred to as conservatism. <laughs> What Salim Mansour has defined and rightly criticized as, the, uh, as ideology on our show is not the definition uh, that we just heard by Ayn Rand, but is consistent with her exact definition of anti-ideology, which sounds like the problem cited by Salim's ideology definition. Quote, anti-ideology consists of the attempts to shrink men's minds down to the range of the immediate moment without regard to past or future, without context or memory, above all without memory, so that the contradictions cannot be detected and errors or disasters can be blamed on the victims. In an anti-ideological practice, principles are used implicitly and are relied upon to disarm the opposition but are never acknowledged and are switched at will when it suits the purpose of the moment. Whose purpose? The gangs. Thus, men's moral criterion become not my view of the good or of the right or of the truth, but my gang, right or wrong. A majority without an ideology is a helpless mob to be taken over by anyone. End quote. In a nutshell, that pretty well describes the electoral phenomenon we're witnessing in the United States between Trump and Clinton and what politics has long ago degenerated down to in most countries in the world today. Bear in mind that what Ayn Rand already observed and described in essential terms and prescribed solutions for was written half a century ago and yet is only now crossing the visual perception of the media and conservatives who still have no solutions to the crisis in science. Any way you look at it, what needs to be applied to the whole junk science dilemma is a rational and objective philosophy, without which science will perish, something that even those who do not understand the cause can see. It is our hope that a rational and objective philosophy is something that Robert and I managed to squeeze in and apply to the topics we discuss each and every week on Just Right. Just as we plan to do again next week, when we'll continue our philosophical journey in the right direction. Join us then, won't you? And between now and then, you know the score. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and above all, be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It's happening, it's happening. <laughs> Professor Proton is coming to our house. You're kidding! You mean the guy who used to host that lame kids show? Well, and you just got yourself uninvited. <laughs> See, I told you I'd find a tactful way to do that. How'd you get him to come to your house? 
as Professor Proton always says, there is no problem you can't solve if you use your noggin. And he wrote him a check. Yeah, that too. Big check. 